history, our first goal. This is the Originals Podcast. I'm Sam Lane. Thank you for tuning in. Suddenly, there's just one match of AFLW season 2021 to go for the Tigers. Please, no! No! In this eighth episode of Series 2, we meet Harriet Cordner, a big-name signing to Punt Road, who tells us she could not be happier with her decision to find a new footy club home. Harriet carries a very famous footy surname. Her grandpa, Don Cordner, won a Brownlow medal for being best and fairest in the men's comp in 1946. She has two relatives, Don and Dennis, who are named in Melbourne's team of the century. Thoughtful and very generous in this chat, Harriet tells us how that came to prove a weight for her. Debuting when the AFLW did in 2017, she loved her four years as a Melbourne player, but since leaving has had an overwhelming sense of joyful empowerment. She'll fill you in on the finer details. There are 17 episodes of the originals already banked. You'll find them all wherever you get your podcasts and on richmondfc.com.au. And this second series of The Originals has a sponsor. It's Wise Employment, which exists to help people who have employment barriers, including mental illness and disability, find meaningful work. Find out more at wiseemployment.com.au or call 1800 685 105. But now... Drum roll, please, as we zoom into today's guest on the originals. A 28-year-old who used to wear number 21 for the demons, just like her granddad did, but now wears number 23 as a tiger. Welcome to the originals, Harriet. Hang on. I thought I was going to be talking to Harriet Cordner, but I was expecting to see a top knot, and I don't. Harriet, is it really you? It is me. It's just me away from game day. So the top knot has become a bit of a game day hairstyle for me and I tend to only wear it when I'm on the track. Seriously, we are now staring down the barrel of Richmond's last game in its second season of AFLW. As we approach that, Harriet, how does that make you feel? Pretty mixed emotions, to be honest. I think it's obviously it's a really big game this weekend for us and a really exciting opportunity against the Bulldogs. But I think sort of going back to after the game on Sunday, um, a few of us were in the change rooms after the game and sort of just having our food, just sort of doing recovery, having showers and that sort of stuff. And we sort of said to each other, we've got two more training sessions this season and one more game. And there were actually a few tears amongst the group of girls that it is just really sad to think that you sort of dedicate so much of your life for sort of this five-month period where you're kind of you're on a bit of a roller coaster really the emotions and the highs obviously the highs and the lows but sort of that the energy that comes from being a part of a team and a part of a club and a part of a program like an AFLW program really takes you on this I guess roller coaster journey that as it's coming to an end it's almost scary to think that this time next week we won't be coming into the club for training and it's a really hard I think it's a really hard feeling to process Obviously, it's not over yet, so you sort of aren't sitting at home sad about it yet, but it is the the thought of not coming into the club next week is really daunting, I think, and waiting another six months to start all over again. Do you think there's now, and I've talked to Gil McLaughlin about this on the record, and he's said essentially that he's sorry, that it's just not 
satisfactory in any way to him that in the fourth season of the AFLW, we essentially have a, a nothing, you know, that it was a question mark. Do you think there's whether a resentment or a just a general sense of dissatisfaction or inequity or whatever? I mean, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but that what we saw after all that was like the machine of the AFL getting the AFL men's season finished with premieres come hell or high water. Like, was that hard to watch as as an AFLW player? Yes, definitely. I think that again it was it does all feel like it was a bit of a whirlwind and we sort of had to make this really quick decision on the fly we also didn't really think probably didn't really understand the complete implications of it um in the moment but i think then kind of having 8 months to sit back and really not have you know first we also didn't really know when our season was going to run we had we didn't know where we were going to play for some of us you know it was there was a lot of uncertainty throughout that 8 months in terms of the following AFLW season, I think watching, um, yeah, watching what happened in the men's space, in the AFL men's space was hard because it felt like um, after what we had been through, we had sort of been, I guess, put to the side in a sense. And to think that, yeah, that season didn't, didn't have a conclusion really, didn't have any closure and that anything and everything was done for the sort of for the AFL men's season in the time in in what we were facing, which is obviously a really unprecedented time. Um, but I guess I don't know if frustration's the right word, but it was it was hard. It was just hard to watch. I think as a player in the competition, part of me feels like, and I mean, you never know if this is how it would have felt anyway. But the AFL women's competition has almost been more supported after having gone through that. I almost feel like it has been really, really embraced this year, maybe in a way that it wasn't in the first three to four seasons. And again, it's you, you don't know that that wouldn't have happened. You know, it's hard to say that after the fact, but I just wonder if there are people that watched that happen and thought, how unfair, and, you know, that was wrong, that now have sort of gotten behind the competition that perhaps wouldn't have in that way. What's your sacrifice story? Because everyone's got one. How have you had to juggle whatever you do for work or study? And please share with us that and how you've made that work. Um, yeah, so I'm at the moment I work at RMIT University in their sort of student administration area for the students that study online. Um, I got into that actually through playing football. So it was a, it was a football connection that... Um, got me that job which was really lucky for me but I guess I've done a bachelor's degree which I finished in my first season of AFLW and after I finished that I did a bachelor of exercise in sports science and that I finished that and started playing footy sort of almost at the same time and so I put that on hold a little bit and thought you know I'll come back to that at the moment I really wanted to focus at that moment I really wanted to focus on footy I think that if I hadn't have had footy as an out as an outlet or as something else to focus on. Um, I would have gone straight back and studied more because I probably didn't get what I wanted out of that degree. Um, but in I sort of just I guess worked part time, um, stayed living at home for probably a bit longer than I would have just because it was easiest with training, with the commitments, with all that sort of stuff. Um, and then since then, I've just slowly chipped away at a master's of primary school teaching 
um, which I'm currently still doing and I'll finish in July, but studied part-time doing that and worked part-time. You were at the Melbourne Footy Club from 2017, from year one of AFLW, and there's a backstory to how and why you stayed there and uh, until the end of 2020 in that very short and abrupt ending. We'll get to that. But is it true you you met your Richmond teammates for the first time on a Zoom call? Yeah, the trade period happened. I got traded and we had a welcome via Zoom. Remember, I think I, I, think I was sitting up in bed, had my computer earphones on. Zoom can be a really awkward place if people have their microphone on mute. We did a little story time and I told this story and I'm I'm hoping that everyone's microphone was just on mute because I didn't get as many laughs as I thought I would. <laughs> and I was like, oh, maybe these people don't find me funny. They hate but, me already. Yeah, I'm like, oh, I shouldn't have told that story. I can't take it back now. <laughs> Not only did I meet them for the first time on Zoom, but I probably didn't meet them in person for probably two months after that. I reckon the trade period was in August and we didn't get into training until October. So not only did I only meet them on, um, did I meet them on Zoom for the first time, but I only knew them via Zoom. And I remember coming to the club and a couple of people, I was like, I'm actually not sure what her name is because her Zoom name was something different. I think it was her last name. Then she's got a nickname. She was wearing a mask when I first saw her. I was like, I don't know who you are. Did that make you feel or second guess the the move because you were with Melbourne you were delisted at one point but then you were re-signed I've wondered you know how jarring an experience that might have been for you or might not I'm not sure but you had the family connection to the demons with your surname did the zoom transition make you think my gosh is this is this going to work? Is this right? Because, of course, if you'd still been a demon, you you know everyone. I definitely was certain that I wanted to move and that I sort of went through that throughout COVID where, and it was, again, it was a really difficult time to get a trade. It was a really awkward, you were talking to clubs and clubs were saying, well, we don't even know when the trade, we don't even know when your season's starting. Like, we can't talk to you right now. We, you know, we don't even know how many people we can, you know, it was just a really, and knowing that, that was what I wanted. It was a really hard, I had to be really patient and just kind of go, it'll work out how it's going to work out. Like it really, that, so that was a, first of all, a really hard part of it. But I think I did have one moment during the sort of two month period after the trade where I was, I thought to myself, oh my gosh, what have I done? I've just moved my whole, and not only had I played with a lot of those girls at Melbourne for four years, I had had the same coaching staff for four years and the club, as you touched on before, meant something really special to me, to my family. It was something that had been, a, you know, really close to, I guess, really a big part of my identity for 25 years of my life. I think it was when I got sent a little package in the mail of some Richmond gear just so that I, and I sort of looked at it and was like, I'm not sure that I can put that on yet. So I think that was when I was like, oh gosh, what have I done? Like, have I made this decision in COVID that I shouldn't have made sort of thing? But I mean, it was a fleeting moment and it didn't last as soon as I sort of came into the club. Um, it completely, that, you know, it didn't last long at all. But yes, I definitely think that the meetings via Zoom and not really getting to actually connect with my teammates and get to know them as people outside of football um, probably made it harder than it would have been. Yeah. Why were you so certain that the move was the right thing for you to do? 
when I first started football, I, which was when I got picked up by Melbourne, um, I hadn't played football before, you know, competitively. Um, I think when I first decided, I saw that AFLW was happening and I decided, hey, that's something I really want to do. There was just this thing and I don't know, it was a subconscious, I think it was even subconscious, but there was just this Melbourne w- would be where I'd go. And it wasn't even, I hadn't had conversation with anyone. It just, in my mind that we had, I'd been, I'd grown up in a family that that was not one of my family members has ever barracked for any team other than Melbourne. It's almost like no other team exists. And that's through the ups and downs that we've been through as Melbourne supporters. Like it's just been, and so I think that I did, I didn't even really think about it when I went to Melbourne. I, I didn't even engage in conversations with any other clubs initially. Um, and I think that re- gave me a real sense of excitement when I first started. But I think it, looking back on it, it probably took away from the actual football experience, the, the experience as an actual footballer that I got in the first couple of years. There was a lot of, I think, maybe I, I'm not even sure if I was aware of it, but a lot of probably pressures that came from like comparing me to people that I in my family or um, was I going to be a ruck because that was what my grandpa was but I'm five foot ten and I'm not a ruck you know it was sort of there was probably um, and I probably put pressure on myself anyway just because I had family members that I hadn't spoken to in you know or I didn't speak to very often saying oh my gosh you're playing for Melbourne now you know how great's that and it's sort of I think it just it it added pressure that then wasn't about me just competing in this new sport and because also I was new to the sport I was learning the sport so I was not only doing that but I was also sort of doing it being showcased for something that I hadn't even achieved yet remember channel 7 did an interview I hadn't even played a game yet and they did an interview down at the MCG um outside my grandpa like the corner entrance and I remember going home thinking like I didn't. I haven't even kicked a footy yet. Like this is absurd. Like sort of just thinking like, and I had, it was a really cool story. So I sort of understood where they were coming from, but I didn't feel like I was able to just write my own path. I didn't feel like I was able to, and I'm not the kind of person who wants to be acknowledged for something I haven't done or haven't achieved. It was like it, I hadn't done anything yet at all. I'd simply been born into a family that had done a lot of great things, but I personally felt like I hadn't fulfilled what I wanted to in the sport. And I think maybe that overshadowed the experience that I was after as just a competitive athlete. I just wanted to compete and to learn and to be my best sort of thing. And I think probably, so I think I struggled with that for the first couple of years. And then I think I started to, that died down a little bit. Um, just as I, you know, the story got old, I guess it was just, it was what it was. And I think that then I started to realize I hadn't fulfilled. I didn't feel fulfilled in the sport. I didn't feel like I'd achieved what I felt like I could achieve or probably been, I didn't feel like I had really challenged myself because I sort of felt like it came a bit too easy in the sense of, I sort of, maybe I was gifted that opportunity because of my family name. I think that. And so that kind of became, I felt like I needed a challenge. I felt like I needed my own space, I guess, which was probably the driving, because I loved the people that I played with at Melbourne. I loved the club. I loved my experience there. But I think that 
I kind I became a little bit sort of stuck in this place that I'd sort of just been shoved into if that makes mm. sense you were part of a narrative yeah yeah which is irresistible and like it's not like you're denying it and um, but if your surname was not Cordner if you didn't have two relatives that were named in the clubs like it's not like they just played five games each you know they're in the team of the century and then you're kind of there and suddenly I mean this is the picture I'm getting you feel like well hold on apart from the fact that I love the demons and I've supported them all my life and I know all this this doesn't mean that I can even play more than one game exactly yeah and it didn't take away from you know the all the positive experiences I had at Melbourne but they weren't sort of and, and initially, sorry, the positive, initially it was amazing. I got to wear my grandpa's number. I got to, you know, that initially, I got to play for the football team that I grew up barracking for. That was awesome. But it was sort of as that initial, I guess, the novelty of that wore off after a while that I went, hang on, maybe I'm not getting the best out of myself as a footballer here. And just because of that story, that backstory, it doesn't mean that this is where I have to play my football. I don't have to only play at Melbourne for the rest of my career just because that's what happened to my family. So I think that was when I came to the realisation, hang on, maybe I need something else, a different challenge and a different space. Totally. And it makes sense that that would take four years. I mean, you're 28 now, I think. Yeah. So you're 23, 24 when this is going on. That's like a serious growing up period and coming to know yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it took me a little while to to identify what it was that I was missing. because And I think I did feel a little bit, um, I remember having a conversation with my dad about whether, you know, thinking maybe I, maybe I need to move. And I remember feeling guilty almost, thinking, can I? You know, what, like what would my, I remember my grandma said to me when I first was talking about playing footy, she said, oh, well, you'll have to play for Melbourne. And she absolutely wouldn't have minded who I played for. But that was just sort of, you know, a bit of a side comment. Like, and I remember having the conversation with my dad and thinking, is he going to be angry at me? Like, am I doing something wrong? And he wasn't at all. He was completely supportive of, and I mean, it was probably silly for me to think that he wouldn't have would have been because he is, you know, my biggest supporter. But I just remember thinking even within myself, like feeling like, oh, am I betraying the family name by wanting to go somewhere else? But so I think it did take me a little while to sort of realise and figure out what it was, what was the reason behind that. Um, and I guess, tr- I guess sort of has still taken me a little while to let go of that connection. Um, and still, obviously, I love the Melbourne Footy Club. I love watching the men play and I love, but I've got a different connection now that I've sort of created for myself. Just a short pause here to tell you about the first sponsor of the Originals podcast. It's Wise Employment, a Melbourne-based, Australian-owned, not-for-profit organisation that's been helping Australians for nearly 30 years. Wise's ultimate vision is to inspire, transform and enable people to realise their potential. Wise pushes for diversity and inclusion in Australian workplaces and it helps people with employment barriers like mental illness and disability to find meaningful work. WISE's partnership with Richmond's AFLW team is motivated by WISE Employment's particular dedication to supporting women athletes and empowering women in all aspects of life. 
WISE has a Richmond office and over 100 others across Victoria, New South Wales, Tasmania, South Australia, Queensland and the Northern Territory. The friendly team at WISE Employment would love to meet you and discuss how they can help you find employment or help find the right fit for your team. Visit wiseemployment.com.au or call 1800 685 105. And tell them, if you like, that you heard about WISE thanks to the Richmond Footy Club and the Originals podcast. Now, back to our chat with Harriet. It's a really great empowerment story and identity story and it reminds me of talking to Sarah Hosking about her decision to leave Carlton and just how profound it is still that for the first time in her life she is not playing on the same team as her identical sister. And it's a little bit similar. You were actively removing yourself, not through bad blood or anything bad, but actively removing yourself from something that seemed just like you almost had to. And I guess if you consider the Hosking twins, that's massive as well. And I think that's, I haven't actually spoken to Sarah about that, but I think that is something that I've been asked a couple of times, you know, since I've been at Richmond, what, you know, could people say, do you like it? You know, and I say, I absolutely love it. And people have been asked sort of why or what's different or why do you like it? And I think outside of just that the programs are different and all that sort of stuff, and as I said, I loved my time at Melbourne and I loved the program I was a part of, but it has been a really empowering feeling being able to step away and do that on my own and have – it's been – I can't that, – like, that's a really perfect word to describe it, that I feel – this this whole season and this whole journey coming to Richmond has really empowered me just as an individual, even outside of football, nothing to do with playing footy or how I've played this season, but purely just as a human, it's been really empowering. I love it. You've got the hands on your steering wheel. Yes. Were the men in your life and sphere, the, influ- the footy influences, did they think it was strange when you decided that you wanted to to pursue footy when you could? Uh, not at all. I think my dad has always my dad has always been really supportive of me wanting to play that sport at a really high level. My mum doesn't have a competitive bone in her body, so she just doesn't understand it. <laughs> but my dad has always been, um, and I sort of, once I got into soccer, that kind of became I wanted to play soccer at the highest level I possibly could, and that was sort of where I was directing all my attention to. And so I think... Dad just saw it as a, he thought, what a great opportunity. He was probably of the mindset before that that this is a long time overdue. I'm not sure why women haven't been able to play footy for a long time. That was his. um, So he was like, absolutely, we're going to that, you know, talent search and let's do it sort of thing was just right right behind it. Um, And my brother's the same thing. I think, again, it wasn't something that we had always, you know, we'd ever discussed or thought how unfair that, there isn't an AFL women's competition, but as soon as it popped up, it was just definitely it was something that every all the men in my life and and the women in my life, but were completely supportive of me going down that path. I think I've always wondered. My grandpa passed away. My pop, um, who won the Brownlow Medal for Melbourne, passed away in two thousand and nine, and I have always wondered what he. My grandma, as I touched on before, was really supportive of it, um, but I have always wondered what he would have said about the AFL women's competition. I just, I don't know. I just am curious. I think he thought would have thought it was great. He was always a really big supporter of my sport in general and of my brother's sport 
as a as a grandpa, not as anything more than that. But I, always, I I do often find myself, and I think I've asked my dad, but I'm not. I can't remember what the answer is. But often find myself wondering what he would have thought of it. I wanted to ask you. You referenced your footy memories, and I wanted to ask you about your footy memories with your pop, Don. Um, I gather they often involved a can of coke, a few chocolates in a napkin, and maybe a few wild stories that you might share. One I scribbled down here. A prompt was. Just ask about a labour. Oh. <laughs> yes. I have really strong memories of watching uh, at the MCG before they um, demolished the Southern Stand, before they redid the Southern Stand. And we used to watch the football from a box that was that just came off the side of the long room. And so I actually don't think I watched a game of football in the open crowd until I was about 15 years old. 14 years old so we used to watch it um in this box and my grandparents would used to be in the long room and have lunch and they would always come and visit after and that was when they'd bring us a glass bottle of coke which was fancy and a couple of little chocolates um, wrapped up in a napkin um and the bartender his name was tom i actually don't know what his last name was but he was I just absolutely adored him. So I think I liked going to the footy mainly to see him. <laughs> so he was the one that brought us the chocolates and the Coke. But it was always a really big... My grandparents were from down the coast, so for them it was a outing. And that, to me, I think was always the most exciting part, that Dad would say, we're going to the footy today, and I knew that that meant I was seeing Granny and Pop and I was going to hang out with them. And I think probably for them it was the most exciting part too. <laughs> Um, they'd have lunch in the long room and then they'd, yeah, basically come and sit in the box and just chat to us. And so I think that for me, that's what footy was really. And the story about the doctor and labour? So the story goes that in, in being an amateur and a doctor at the same time, and this I think sort of just is testament to the kind of person that my pop was, um, he helped deliver a baby and he had to go straight from, oh, sorry, he delivered a baby um, and then the lady, you know, 12 months later was pregnant again and he's, and she, I think it had been a really difficult delivery. So he said, I'll be at the next one, don't worry, you know, no matter what, I'll be there to deliver it. I'll be holding your hand all, all the way, everything. Um, it turned out that she went into labour on the day of, I think it was the first semi-final. So he, so she went into labour and he had said, I'll be there. So he went to the hospital out in Diamond Creek and helped deliver the baby. And I think he got to the game five minutes before the bounce and he said he, he hadn't eaten, he had had an apple or something all day, was absolutely exhausted. But he And he said just as he was jogging out onto the field, he said, I'm not going to do this anymore. I can't, I can't do this to myself again. And that was the last game he ever played. So he, oh. that was when he realised... I can't, I just can't juggle both. And his patients were everything to him. He just loved, that was, you know, he got so much fulfilment from that, that he just said, I can't, I'm not going to do that one anymore. <laughs> wow. What a yeah, to have in your life. Thank you for sharing those um, memories, Harriet. When you walk into Punt Road finally, when you're off Zoom, what hits you? You mentioned that the programs are different. I guess that's natural. You've got to you know, a startup club essentially as opposed to one of the originals um, that joined AFLW in 2017. What are your memories of what struck you about differences? Um, I think there's 
a real sense of um there was a real sense when I first walked in of I guess an unfinished business in a way and I think that there was from the group a real sense of a bit of a shock from last season I think of sort of where they're at and where they need to be and I think that the group had sort of been challenged with that um and really understood where they were where they were in terms of where they sort of um how far off they were where they needed to be and where they wanted to be and I think that was a real was sort of set to the group of players as a real challenge for that off season and obviously the off season looked a little bit different than ideally it should have or could have but I think I felt that sense of urgency and of want to learn and of this real buzz around hey we haven't even touched the surface of where we want to be and that for me was really refreshing I think obviously in my first couple of seasons at Melbourne it was the competition was new and so we there was this buzz around it um and I think coming to a club that's emerging and that I guess really have a point to they believe they've got a point to prove back you know when we're starting I think I got that sort of a, a refreshing new sense of, wow, like this, I can have a real impact on this group and also they're ready to be impacted. You know, they want that. They want people coming in. They wanted experience. They wanted, they were, yeah, they were ready to go. And they're, and the thing that I've noticed about the group since being a part of it is it's just full of sponges. Like every single person within the program just wants to learn. And I think that's what's really cool. Every time you walk in the door, I think. And Ferg has sort of um, just added to that his mm. his want to just grow the group, the knowledge of the group. Now suddenly from, you know, no wins, the team's won three of its last four outings. What in a footy sense and dynamic sense can you describe as having come together, which it, it has? I think that... One thing that is big within this program um, is playing to your strengths. And there isn't um, what they've done, what I feel like Ferg and the team have done really well is probably not creating a complex game plan, not implementing a really complicated structure. It's, it's really driven by play on what you see, play on the instincts, play on what's in front of you, and we trust you to do that, which I think is sort of to go back to that empowering feeling. It's an amazing feeling as an athlete to have that behind you. I think it, it then has allowed us as a group to figure things out for ourselves on the field, and I think to be a part of a team that, one, is allowed to do that but also is figuring out how to do that is really awesome. So I think probably from the gameplay side of things, it's it's that it's the simple game plan and us sort of um, taking ownership and owning the experience ourselves rather than it being yeah. dictated to us. And then I think probably that gives the players the ability to play with a real, real sense of belief. Like in it, and Ferg has been really big on the process, which I'm sure you've heard him say. And it, it has been about the process. It hasn't at all been about the result at all. And I think that because that's in your control, I think, and it sort of sounds cliche, but I think he really has empowered us to only focus on the things that we can control, which ultimately as an athlete is a really freeing way to play. 
even if something's going right, his his solution to that or his response to that is not to tell you it's almost he's not really telling you the answers, which I think is he almost is saying, sort of presenting the facts and then saying, you know, what do you think about it and what are you going to do about it? Because I'm not going to tell you how to fix it or I'm not going to tell you what you've done great because that's up to you to figure it out. And I think I've never had a coach that's probably taken such a backseat role, which I think is – and maybe at the start we had to adjust to that a little bit and there was a bit of, hang on, are you going to tell me am I in the right spot or did I do something wrong or did I do something right? Whereas now as players we're learning, I don't actually need him to tell me that I did it wrong or right. I I know that and I can trust – and it's that is a really cool feeling as an athlete to go, hang on, I'm in control of what I'm doing well, what I'm not doing well. And we can lean on each other to figure that out as opposed to relying on someone to tell me from above that I've done the right or the wrong thing. Last one. You are handed a wand of magic here and you can wave it and you will give AFLW anything that you wish for. What are you giving AFLW? A 22-game season next year <laughs> wow make it happen season. make it happen <laughs> make it happen so all clubs suddenly we have a full complement yep yeah we play everyone you know they fit you know they do a fixture however they do it i don't know they work their magic sure but we play we, we have a full-blown season where we don't have to juggle this that and the other and go on the roller coaster of I'm committing four nights a week and then I'm doing absolutely nothing. We just get it all. Get it all. I, I, I think it's the perfect way to wrap. We love this, that and the other. We love roller coasters, but we've had enough of all of that. So closing uh, take from Harriet Cordner here on the originals is Gil, make it work. Love it. Challenge. <laughs> <laughs> we will send him this episode. Hello, Gil. Great. <laughs> Thank you so much, Harriet, and and best of luck. There is one game left for 2021 for you and for Richmond, but you've made me absolutely convinced that you've made the right decision and that um, you have so much more excitement ahead of you. So thanks so much, Sam. I really appreciate it. Well, that wraps up another week of The Originals. Thanks so much for listening. And don't forget, if you're into this, the first 10-part series of The Originals is already banked. We had long-form chats with Katie Brennan, Mon Conti and Sabrina Frederick, just to name a few. You'll find these and this year's series waiting to be downloaded wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Sam Lane, writer and co-producer of The Originals, working with the superstar support of Richmond's excellent digital team. Very special thanks, Matt Collada, Elizabeth Yor, Bilal Ali, Ian Gall and Josh Berryman. Next week, we've got a season wrap. Yes, and what you can hear there in anticipation is a wrap wrap. Thanks, legend Lizzie Yor, producer of today's episode. For now, we're signing off with the Richmond figurehead who mic drops for the originals like nobody else. Richmond president, Peggy O'Neill. Go Tigers.